Hi, this is Rosie, and welcome to another episode of What Does Your Family Look Like? I am so pleased my friend and neighbor Sharon said yes to doing my podcast. She's a great talker. She's smart. She's a kind and caring woman, someone on whom you can really rely. Probably why she makes such a great doctor. She gives us lots of insight into her daily life in the emergency department. Let's first start out by hearing how she made the decision to become a doctor. Sharon, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to be here. I am What too. an honor. Oh, well, thank you. Um, Sharon is a neighbor, and she's a friend, and she's a doctor, and a mother, and a daughter, and a wife, and all these other things. And she hails from... Uh, Long Island, Long- Massapequa, New York. There you go. <laughs> and we are so lucky to have her here, in, especially in our neighborhood, because she is a Hop- Hopkins doctor. She's an ED doctor. And we use her <laughs> quite frequently, <laughs> from fevers <laughs> to injuries. Remember, my granddaughter yes. hurt herself, and I was like, Sharon, Sharon, can you come over, please? Yes, I am a frequent assistant here in the neighborhood and happy to do so happy to do so we are lucky to have her (laughs) so Sharon give us a little history about you yeah so just kind of a broad overview I grew up on Long Island in New York and then I went to college at the University of Delaware in the great state of Delaware okay Uh, (laughs) go blue hens Woo! Uh, and then I went immediately from college into medical school at the George Washington University. I actually got in off the wait list for med school about 14 days before it started. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So for all of us who don't know that whole process, you want to clue us in a little bit about that? Well, it's changed a lot since I applied, but a lot of things stay the same. You know, you go to undergrad, you do all of your classes, and oftentimes you need certain classes to be like a pre-med major. So you need chemistry and biology and physics um, and organic chemistry. Oh, sounds very heady. It's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. And then you take your MCAT, which has changed very much in the last few, uh, over the last years since I took it. The, The grading is totally, totally different. And then you apply to med school and cross your fingers and hope for the best. And I was really fortunate to get in off the wait list literally 14 days before it started. So you didn't didn't know your fate. You didn't know your future until 14 days before. I had a totally other plan. um, What was it? (laughs) I was actually. So my fiance at the time was living in Baltimore and he had just started his first job. And I was going to move here. And I can't recall if I had an official research job set up or not. And I, I like had apartment shopped and everything, but I don't think I had signed a lease yet. And then it was a long time ago and my mom got a phone call uh, to the house. And it was when we, you had an answering machine and you would have to call your answering machine to get your message. So sometimes you would do that periodically throughout the day. I remember that. And my mom had called and they had left me a message on my home phone because it was also pre-cell phones and, um, or it was when cell phones cost like $7 a minute and like you only used it if you were like dying. Like emergency. (laughs) And, um, 
I was working at a summer camp and it was a horrible, I love working at summer camp in general. And that was kind of my backup career, but <laughs> a summer camp counselor. I really for years minute, wanted to that's a big divide. <laughs> summer camp counselor, doctor. For okay. Years, for years, I wanted to run a summer camp until uh-huh. I sent my kids to summer camp. And then I'm like, Ooh, that's a lot. It's a lot to run a summer camp. Oh, a yeah. lot of stuff goes into that that you don't think about. So anyway, I was working and I, had signed up late to work at the summer camp and I had five and six year old boys who I think is the worst possible age group (laughs) that you could ever, ever have in a million years. And they were such a horrible group of kids. I mean, they weren't bad kids. They were good kids. They were just five and six year old boys who had a lot of energy and every single, you know, you change for swim twice a day and every single day someone lost their underwear, their (laughs) shoes, their earplugs, the amount of emails and calls I had to send to parents. It was like, it was insane. So my mom actually came to the camp to tell me that I had gotten this phone call. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. (laughs) But she came and I felt like whenever that happened, like something dreadful had happened. Right. So my like they were like, your mom's here. And my heart sank. And I was like, oh, my God, what happened? And my mom's like, you have to come home right now. You got a very important message. And I remember it was on August 8th, which happens to be my best friend still to this day, her birthday. So I remember the day and they offered me a spot in the class and I took it immediately. And that's great. I lived in a hotel for the first week, I think, because I didn't have an apartment. Wow. Yeah. Is, is this in Boston? In D.C. Oh, this is in Washington. Washington, right, D.C. You said you went to Georgia. Yeah. Okay, yeah. To Washington. okay. And so I lived in a hotel, and then I sublet an apartment from someone who we actually happened to know um, for a few weeks. And then I my own, my own apartment, I think, became available either on, like, mid-September or, like, October 1st. I can't recall the exact timing. Right. It was when I actually officially moved to my own place. Oh, my God. But, yeah, it was really – it was crazy. There was a lot of imposter syndrome associated with that. Okay, what's that That's, mean? like, when you fe- – like, you've been accepted and, like, someone has recognized that, like, you can do something, but mm-hmm. you feel like you can't live up to that. Mm-hmm. It's a big thing in medicine and probably life in general. I can imagine, you know? though. Yeah. It's like, oh, my God, I want to be a doctor. Oh, my God, I got accepted. Oh, no, I got accepted. Yeah, like, but it, even, like, still, like, getting in 14 days before it starts, yeah. there's a lot of second guessing, right? Right. Um, and then I was – I studied a lot, a lot. You, right. You know, I was in the library a lot. I made good friends. We studied – we were study buddies, and uh, I did really well. I was – I turns out I was very successful in med school, and I tell people all the time the hardest part of med school is getting in, and I do still believe that to this day. Really? That the hardest part is getting in. Um, and then once you're there, you have to work really hard, but for most people, I think it's hard, very hard just to get in and get accepted. Mm -hmm. And I was very, very fortunate and I have, I'm, I rarely brag or say good things about myself, but I happen to graduate top of my class. Oh, that's great. (laughs) And got inducted into like an honor society at the end. I need to tell everybody, but but we, I've known Sharon for a long time and I did not know that, (laughs) that. So she, she's very modest about her talents and abilities <laughs> it was not for lack of trying though it was a lo- it was that's a fantastic lot of though work. that's yes. that's that's fantastic yeah that's yeah. amazing so what other school did had you applied to several other med schools I had applied to other schools I can't recall exactly how many I applied to um was this your like, like 15 like, or 20 oh my schools? gosh 
Yeah. That's a lot. And I think I, I had gotten waitlisted at a few schools, but I hadn't gotten any I hadn't gotten any acceptances. Is so. that a typical thing? Oh, very typical. Yes. People apply for year like years on on years to get into schools. Wow. So I was very, very fortunate to graduate from the program that I did and to really it was my first time I applied. So I was really I was very, very lucky because people really do apply for years. That's I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah. So after med school, then you had residency. Yes. So then you go to residency and I went to residency in, at Boston Medical Center. And it is a fabulous residency program for emergency medicine. Did you and did you know? So we didn't tell everybody. But you are, tell us what your position is at Hopkins. Oh, so I'm an emergency medicine physician, and I work clinically in the emergency department, and then I do a lot of medical education, mm-hmm. uh, and I work in the med school, teaching a few courses okay. you're for busy. the med students. I'm very busy. You're very busy. <laughs> I'm very so did you, <laughs> yes. you're very, did you know you wanted to go into emergency medicine? No, not really. No. Uh, And emergency medicine is actually a very new specialty. So it started in the 80s or late 70s that it started being a specialty because people recognize that it's really to the public's benefit to have people who are trained in Mm -hmm. emergency medicine. So when people come in following traumas or with acute medical issues, that there's people who specifically know how to take care of them in those first few minutes, mm-hmm. hours of their time. And it used to be that emergency departments were staffed by surgeons and and um, like internal medicine doctors. And there would actually be like two sides of the emergency department when mm. you would go, where yeah. it would be, that's back when they were like truly a room, when it was like an emergency oh, room, room rather than an emergency department. Right, right. <laughs> and now, they're, you know, many of us are massive. Yes. Yes. A lot of emergency departments are quite large and overflowing with patients right now. Um, so it's a pretty new specialty and wasn't, I think, on a lot of people's radars. And emergency medicine is a required specialty only at certain medical schools. And at the time, I think it was not a required specialty at my med school. And I actually went into med school thinking I wanted to be a pediatrician, kind of as a corollary to the fact that I wanted to be a permanent camp counselor forever and ever, (laughs) but mainly for like seven and eight-year-old girls. Yeah, she wasn't going to see any five or six-year-old boys. Sorry, this practice, I did not see those. (laughs) We're skipping those years. Um, Your son's fine. Okay, don't come in. (laughs) So originally wanted to be a pediatrician, and I did my pediatrics rotation. Okay. And I did not really love it. So I liked inpatient pediatrics to a certain extent. Um, but I like the thought of taking care of very sick kids for a long time does not appeal to me. It, um, and so I think hard. it would not be good for my, like I, I realized throughout as I went through med school and throughout my rotations that for me, I don't do well when I, have to like I deal with plenty of emotional things in my job but like that longer term connection with lots of emotion associated with it is actually not good for my mental health I realized Mm -hmm. and then I really didn't care about outpatient pediatrics so for those of you who have like taken your kid to the pediatrician when they ask like how much milk do they drink and how many blocks do they stack and (laughs) what are they doing develop I was I could care less like I would leave the room (laughs) and I'd be like they'd be like did you ask this question nope did you ask this question no because I like didn't care (laughs) right and I wasn't invested and uh and some parents were like really mean (laughs) and as a parent now like I sort of get it like it's your kid and it's like your treasured precious one right and sometimes it's hard to have a learner like involved in that. Mm-hmm. 
but I had one mom yell at me because my hands were cold and I touched her baby and like just a whole like conglomeration of everything made me realize that for me long term I didn't think it was going to be something that would make me very happy to do Mm -hmm. either outpatient or inpatient pediatric specialties and then I um And then I thought about internal medicine and then I didn't like the idea of just like managing people's diabetes and high blood pressure all day, every day. And again, like I felt like I would be frustrated if people weren't compliant with their medicines and that would make me crazy. And I get it. (laughs) It's very hard to take medicine. Like I get it, but I I just didn't see myself doing that day to day. I thought a little bit about surgery. I worked with like a very lovely female surgeon and at the time there were not a lot of general sur- like surgeons who were female. Mm-hmm. And um, I pondered that for a little bit. And then I did my emergency medicine rotation. And I was like, this is the best of all the worlds. Wow. And I think it suits my personality that I can. Like one of the things we really have to be able to do is to make people feel comfortable quickly mm-hmm. when they're struggling, when they're stressed, when they're anxious, when they're nervous, mm-hmm. uh, when they don't feel good. So I feel like I am able to establish that rapport quickly with people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I like that you can use like all parts of your brain. So we do like laceration repairs and minor procedures in the ED. We have to use our medicine brains a lot and kind of work through medical mysteries and like diagnostic testing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really like that I know a little bit about a lot. So I can be the... Uh, the doctor for all of my neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> you are, you are, you are the doctor. Well, like the jack of all, you know, like I know how to how to do lots of different things. You know, little local wound care, and right. I know about She's all the great. medicines. I know about eyeballs. Like I know about all the things. <laughs> and we have a bunch of little kids in our neighborhood. Yeah. So you 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 have you got what is like some of the oddest things that, <laughs> that people call me that, about that people have called you about. I mean, call me about like that many odd things and I, they mainly call me like off hours when like stuff like when they can't get in touch with their their people right um their doctors and you know their like... doctors and stuff but I mean I what about at the hospital like uh what are some of the oddest like something you're like oh my gosh in my whole life I never thought I'd see that oh I mean people ask me that question all the time it's a really hard question for me to answer I mean people come in with all sorts of different like funny complaints and stuff. I've been watching way too many medical shows. Do you know where, like, I, do you get bombarded on a daily basis with like all these people coming in at one time? And I mean, are there, I mean, it's a TV show, so. Yeah. I mean, some days you do. Some days it's like, depending upon what area of the emergency department you're working, some days it's like a constant flow of patients and you, you never get a chance to catch up. Um, the like disaster things that you see on the TV are like a dime a dozen, right? right? Like that happens very rarely. And we train for those kinds of things. We do like mock disaster drills, but it's rare that we have like, thank goodness that we have something like that, that happens regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have to be ready in case it does. And right. there's, um, you know, all sorts of processes in place. Right. If you something mu- like that happens. Right. You must be a great delegator. <laughs> can ask my husband <laughs> <laughs> you delegate a lot <laughs> uh yeah i mean you... we'll have jo- we'll have josh on another time <laughs> there you go we'll have josh yeah we'll hear his side <laughs> of the story i think that we have to 
like within the job you have to especially as the like the attending physician our job is generally to be the calmest person in the room because everyone takes like looks to you to kind of set the tone for what's happening so if I'm freaking out then everyone's gonna freak out and if I stay calm and I'm a calm voice then everyone in the room will be a calm voice right right and that's how we take good care of people like freaking out doesn't help anything Right. right so I guess I yeah I think that's what probably amazes me the most about ED medicine is that, you know, I know people come in and they have, I mean, I've been to the ED several times, you know, I wait until I'm doubled over with pain and I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, let's go to the ED. (laughs) And it's like, they give you all these tests and there's nothing, but they gave me some painkillers and that made it feel better and it never came back and it was a mystery. Yeah. So like, do you get a lot of mysteries? Yeah. Yeah. We definitely get a lot of mysteries. <laughs> um, we love to solve the problem. Like right. We love to figure it out, but we don't always figure it out. Uh, and I always, sometimes that's really frustrating for patients. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine like being a patient. I, I've been a patient and had weird symptoms, right? And mm-hmm. not knowing what they are. And usually they go away, thank goodness. Right. <laughs> and then you're better. And it's like, um, okay. I always tell people, like, so whenever you come to the emergency department, our assumption unless like you're there because you sprain your ankle or right. like something very simple mm-hmm. but our assumption is that there's something dreadfully wrong with you until we prove otherwise so if you leave with a we don't really know exactly what's happening for the most part you could know that we've done like our due diligence to hopefully make sure that there's not something dreadfully wrong with you mm-hmm. and that we're able to offer you that reassurance and like send you on your way to follow up with your doctor or to you know, take medicine or treatment mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. to follow up with a specialist. Now, I always tell people nothing in medicine is 100%, right? So if you leave and they're like, everything's fine, that doesn't really mean everything's fine all the time. Right. And it's important still to like pay attention to your symptoms and like do all right. that kind of stuff. Right. But yeah. I know because yeah. as a patient, you go in and you're looking to your doctor and your nurses to like be able to give you an exact mm-hmm. diagnosis. And yeah. it's it's a, it's a, it's not an exact science. I mean, absolutely not. For like people who come in, a lot of people come in with abdominal pain. That's a common presentation. Think, yeah. Uh, that people come in with, and I think the statistics are we find out what's actually wrong in like fifteen to twenty percent of people. Really? So there's like eighty percent of people wow. who we're not able to really give an official diagnosis to. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, wow. and that's just with abdominal pain. I I'm not sure what the numbers are with chest pain. It's probably pretty high too. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I think a lot of us have visited the ED to find there was nothing really wrong with us, or there was not a readily available cause for the doubled over pain we had been experiencing for the past 36 hours. It's comforting to know we are not alone, but a little disconcerting to realize that medicine is not an exact science. It's constantly evolving. As patients, we need to realize that our medical professionals are not omniscient. For those Star Trek fans, and I'm one of them, I'm waiting for Dr. McCoy's tricorder to come into being as the next diagnostic tool. Maybe we're not so far off. Look what our smartphones can do. Till next episode, stay well. Please like and subscribe and follow us on all social media at WDYFLL, the podcast.